Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A massive shift in sentiment over the last couple of months. Bank of America out with the latest fund manager survey for the month of November. Michael Hartnett of Bank of America saying the bulls are back, global recession concerns vanish, and the fear of missing out prompts wave of optimism and jump in exposure to equities and cyclicals. Wanting to get on that, I'm pleased to say, joining us on the phone, Diana Amoa, JP Morgan Asset Management Senior Portfolio Manager. Diana, what do you make of that massive shift in sentiment over the last couple of months? Yeah, I think the Bumble guys are probably right in that we have seen a big shift in recession fears. So the, the, a lot of the concerns around global growth that had been weighing on sentiment have been priced out as we've seen a bit more stabilization in manufacturing. That said, for us, this is more second derivative has stabilized. First derivative is yet to turn definitively. So whilst you know, there, there is some premium that's getting priced out, um, for this to be sustainable, we do need to see the data pick up a lot more from here. Diana, that fund manager survey, recession concerns vanish, inflation expectations surge, corporate profit expectations surge. Is that data? Is there any data behind any of that? Or is that the price setting the narrative here? So there's a couple of things. When you look at market implied expectations, break-evens have definitely bounced off the lows, which is always um, encouraging. Now, to what extent is that um, because of inflation expectations or because deflation as a result of trade concerns is fading out? Um, I think that remains a big question mark. Um, My sense is you know, a lot of this is on trade. If we don't get a deal, if later on today we don't get some indication from the president that there's a willingness to roll back on tariffs, then we go back to where we were um, a couple of months ago where the outlook for manufacturing isn't great and um, we're still seeing a bit of weakness coming through on services. Yeah, the one key aspect of the survey was that cash balances fell to the lowest since 2013. And there's a question embedded in there. Is this a tactical shift uh, with a bearish uh, sentiment shifting to bullish over the next very short term? Or is this a more constructive view for all of 2020? What's your view on that? Well, we've seen sentiment can change very quickly. So I'm hesitant to call it a whole 2020 move. Um, just look at what happened end of last year. We came into 2019 um, extremely bearish on everything, on risk assets, on the global, global growth outlook. And yet we've had a very good year for asset prices. So I think sentiment can turn very quickly. I try not to read too much into this service. And actually, some of them tend to be a bit of a contrarian indicator. So when I see yeah. people getting very bullish, well, the economic data is not quite there yet. That makes me a little bit nervous. Diana, the mathiness of this is an epsilon off the back end of the equation, which is systemic risk. What are those risks out there right now? What is the unknowable that's in the soup that we can't see? Um, so it'll be interesting to see how liquidity evolves into year end. Um, December liquidity is always challenging for markets and it's been that Uh, this year we've seen more and more uh, tightness around the tons so into quarter ends we've seen increasingly more tightness I think you know the market is now not focused on that on the understanding that central banks can bail us out but it's how effective is that a central bank put on liquidity with our discussion with Ed Hyman today, I'm sort of into my year-end mode. Diana, S&P 500 up 23% year-to-date. The Dow's underperforming up only 19%. What's the pressure out there to catch up right now? 
I mean, within portfolios, and I, I mean internationally, domestically, everybody's got a game. They've all rationalized single-digit performance, maybe a low double-digit performance, and they have to catch up. Will that be a factor into the beginning of the year? Um, perhaps in equities. I think sentiment in equities markets was very depressed coming into the year. Um, I think not so for fixed income investors. Um, there was a general consensus on duration, which has worked well this year. And across fixed income markets, you look at returns, it's been a pretty decent year. Dana, just looking regionally at the moment, Mohamed al put out a, v- a view piece on Bloomberg Opinion in the last couple of days, pointing out that since the end of 2010, the S&P 500 up 196%, European equities 55%, EM 10%. Europe is where optimism, misplaced optimism, has gone to die for much of this decade relative to the performance of the United (laughs) States. And yet, what are people talking about in the last couple of months? Get an exposure to Europe once again. What are you saying to those people? I think there's a huge fear of missing out um, where for years it's been the most frustrating trade where every every couple of years you get people calling the big turn, reflation is coming back to Europe and that's consistently been wrong. Um, I struggle to see a huge pickup in the European outlook if we don't get a definitive deal, if the outlook on China doesn't improve because Europe is super exposed to the Chinese manufacturing outlook. So for me, I'm more skeptical on that. Um, and from a fixed income point of view, I'm not willing to fade the ECB bond buying. So I think, you know, you, you don't fade what the central banks are doing. Maybe you get a bit of um, asset price inflation coming through because of central bank policy. But from an economic point of view, I think the data is still not there. Hey, Diana, great to catch up with you. Diana, I'm over there. JP Morgan Asset Management Senior Portfolio Manager. It is rare that there can be a house that from the first publication, they just go. Capital Economics has done that with Roger Boodle's leadership. It's been extraordinary how, uh, John, they had a voice right from day one, and they had a value from day one. And for a man that is quite critical of Southside research and the way it's presented, Tom, I have to say that Capital Economics do a nice little job. Yeah. Getting it all into one page. Just squeezing it in. Let's go. Here's our message. Go. Let's go now. Neil Shearing with us, Capital Economics Group Chief Economist. That was the appearance fee. So, Neil, thank you. It's all downhill from here. (laughs) Who's going to win the election? Okay, you can go. Uh, Look, it's the Tory. In in the UK, it's the Conservatives to lose. Um, The deal yesterday with the Brexit Party backing out, that helps them. But fundamentally, as we were just discussing off air, this is going to be the fourth term in office go around for the Conservatives. It's really rare for a government that's had four terms in office to increase their vote share, increase their seat share. So they're up against it, but the opposition's fractured. Brexit dominates everything. They've got a clear message. The campaign's not started well, though. That's enough Brexit talk. Are you done Continue. with Brexit I'm already? I'm so done. Are you already done with Brexit talk? We Go. can move on if you're serious. Midday. I think he's serious. Midday New York time. The president addressing the Economic Club of New York. Who's the audience for that, Neil? Can you get your hands around Good that at question. the moment? Well, you would think the audience is Wall Street. It's in New York. Um, it's clear. It's at the, the, econ- uh, the New York Economic Club. So it should be Wall Street. It should be about the economy. But we really don't know um, the extent to which these are prepared remarks, to which he'll be riffing it. The market's going to be looking for some signal uh, around trade um, and any breakthrough with the on, on the U.S.-China trade talks. 
Europe might come back onto the agenda too, the trade talks there um, and, and the car tariffs. But really, we're in the dark. I th- the audience has to be the markets, though. Some reports today suggesting that this administration will give it a miss introducing tariffs on European autos, perhaps delay that decision, push it back into maybe 2020. Neil, to what extent do the trade hawks shape the president's policy on China in the months to come? To what extent do they push back on the president's ability to roll back tariffs? I think there's two things that are going to shape um, his positioning on trade. The first is, as you say, the, the hawkish element uh, within the White House. And the, on the opposing side is the stock market. Um, and for as long as the stock market is jittery about trade, then I think that will have the upper hand. Um, and I think the, the fact that the economy was slowing, um, uh, pressure on the Fed to ease over the last six months, that has, is really what's been the trigger for the, the, the easing, if you like, around the trade, the, the trade war. Do you think that the trade skirmish has distracted people from the real uh, development, which is the stagnation, what you called the great stagnation or the Japanification of developed markets? I think it has. And I think that even within the narrow confines of the trade war, um, the, the focus, the really narrow focus has been on tariffs and particularly between the US and China. And I think there's actually something far more fundamental going on, which is that the world has hit peak globalization. I think over the next 10 years or so, we'll see a rollback of globalization. The world, I think the trade war itself will shift away from tariffs and towards things like technology, industrial policy. Um, this isn't going to go away quickly. But this raises another issue, which is the great hope for a reacceleration of the global economy on some sort of trade deal. Is it misplaced? Well, it depends what you mean by Reacceleration. I suspect that Q4 will be weak, Q1 will be weaker still. By the time we get into the second half of next year, our view is that the global economy will start to find its feet, growth will start to pick up. But this is the context of the global economy growing at kind of high twos, low threes, whereas we, we were used 10 years ago, at least before the financial crisis, to growth global growth being in the fours uh, and pushing the fives. So I think it, we're in a new era of structurally much weaker growth in emerging markets, in developed markets. So the cycle will play out, but it's just going to be at a much lower level. To define capital economics fiscal space, I mean, it's interesting to me with the, I'm going to call it inherent conservatism of Roger Bodle in your shop. Is the fiscal space out there to be fiscally spacey? Yeah, I think it is, um, if that's the technical term. <laughs> that's also a t-shirt. They don't do that fiscally at spacey. In Cambridge. Let me just tell you, the t-shirts are just rolling out. If you, if you run with this idea that uh, the, the, the world economy is in a period of much weaker growth, low inflation, low interest rates, that should mean that governments can sustain much higher rate, uh, debt burdens. That doesn't mean to say that you can just turn on the fiscal spigots and spend money left, right and centre. I think it has to be well targeted. Um, And if you're looking for an example of something that's not well targeted, I think the the stimulus that we had in the US 18 months ago is probably a good example of that. So it needs to be well targeted. Some countries have more space than others, uh, and particularly in Southern Europe, where the ECB doesn't necessarily stand directly behind the bond market. I think there's less fiscal space. Um, but in the UK, in the US even, I think there, uh, Germany in particular, these twin surplus countries, there, there is more fiscal space. Hey, Neil, great to see you. Neil Shearer, Capital Economics Group, Chief Economist. Tom, are you happy with that? The shortest election discussion with Neil Shearer well, we possibly have we've back. ever had. Oh, no, I think a we whole can have him back. 20 it's seconds. such a lengthy seven-week campaign.
Francisco Blanche joining us for too brief a time here. He is with Bank of America and, of course, not looking at the equity markets, but looking at commodities in general. Francisco, do you frame for 2020 a recover internationally? And if you do, does it include a commodity recovery? Um, well, Tom, I think what, what, we, um, what we have to look at in, in the first half of 2020 is uh, a restocking cycle a global uh, inventory restocking cycle, not so much for commodities, but really for finished goods. Um, and, and this could come on the back of the, uh, of the um, trade deal that has been negotiated between uh, the White House and, um, and, and uh, Chinese, the Chinese government. Um, if that happens, we think we'll see a, a rebound in, in commodity prices, probably a modest rebound. Because the one thing that we think this is not is a big uh, capex cycle. So as, as you know, when you look, we think about GDP, there's four elements to GDP, right? Consumer, government, uh, net exports, and investment portion. And it is really this investment portion that we're going to see a, a recovery in, but only as it relates to inventories. Uh, inventories are very low. Um, the collapse in global trade, uh, coupled with the relatively robust consumer and, and, uh, and, and effectively continued wage growth and, and employment, uh, has left us with these very low inventory levels. And that's what we are seeing in the first half of the year, a recovery, a restocking cycle, but not a CAPEX cycle. The CAPEX cycle would require a much more comprehensive uh, a trade agreement with China and effectively settling the U.S.-China relationship uh, at least for a number of years. And yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. So uh, lower CapEx spending, lower industrial spending we've seen, and this has bled into the view for oil uh, sort of range bound here or even pressure to the lower. And what I'm trying to understand is we're seeing shale producers right now cutting production or saying they're going to cut production. Uh, larger offshore oil producers, oil drillers, uh, likely to also cut production in the next year. How much is that going to change the dynamic uh, for the price of crude? Well, it's it's going to change the dynamics for sure. Um, and it's going to uh, probably push the, uh, the cost curve a little higher. But remember that... Um, uh, Remember that at the end of the day, we have pretty flat, uh, a pretty flat cost curve in the energy space in, in the world right now, thanks to shale. Uh, it used to be the case that we had very steep curves, uh, so effectively vertical supply curves in, mm-hmm. in oil, uh, when we had to go out and drill for oil in the Arctic or uh, develop these big Canadian oil sands projects. But today, uh, right. it's very important, today we have very flat supply curves and even at $5 moving prices, it's enough to encourage people to drill for more oil. And, and I think the best example, you see it in the natural gas space, where small movements in natural gas mm-hmm. prices have continued to lead to more production. And the same thing applies to oil. But it is clear that, that uh, exploration and production companies in America are being subject yeah. to a massive capital drainage and, and continued producer discipline. Francisco, there's, there's no question about that. Too short today. Francisco Blanche, we want to get you on again soon. Uh, Francisco Blanche, Bank of America, Maryland, just some really good commodity research and on the dynamics of the trade war. As soon as you got in here this morning, Tom, at 3 or 4 in the morning, whenever it is you get in here, I'm sure you downloaded that Disney Plus app. So I you did. Have your, uh, Francine, fro- are you in exactly. there? Exactly. 
frozen all day, every day. Geetha Ranganathan covers all the media stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us here. So, Geetha, Disney Plus, it's a huge, huge deal for the company. Do you think they're going to make it work? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely, Paul. Uh, there's been a lot of excitement. There's been a lot of anticipation building up for this service. I mean, this is going to be the linchpin for Disney's um, direct-to-consumer strategy. Um, so this has been really many, many years in the making. Uh, you know, you, as, as you well know, they first a- acquired the technology with the BAM tech platform. Then they went on and uh, purchased Fox to get that extensive catalog of content. So uh, they've really planned this meticulously, and I think uh, they're going to hit the ground running. So, Keith, I'm looking at the stock. It's actually up 25% this year, and everybody but Al from Jersey is happy with the stock. But they're not going to make money on this thing for four or five years. Are, are you surprised that investors are giving them that much of leeway, given that this thing's going to be a big money loser? Yeah, they are going to uh, end up losing at least two and a half billion in fiscal 2020. Probably another two to two and a half billion in 2021. Uh, they've said that they're not going to make any money on the service at least till 2023, 2024. Uh, but I think just with streaming becoming such a core part of the entire company going forward, uh, I think really the stock is going to trade purely on subscriber numbers. It's, it's really going to be pretty much a replay of, of Netflix, I think, to a certain extent. Netflix in its early days. Okay, but. The, the, the difference here is, like, I, you know, not that David Weston would put a gun to my head and make me do this, but 30% EBITDA goes down to 24% EBITDA. Net income goes from an 18 cents margin. The amount of that Weston captured, Paul, was stunning. 18% yeah. margin down to 14% margin. Free cash flow is going to go from 10 gazillion down to 6 gazillion. I mean, is that the trend? Weaker financials because of streaming? I think it is going to be that way. I mean, management has really braced uh, Wall Street and investors for this. Uh, you know, they, they've kind of laid out their strategy. Uh, we are going to have to be prepared for some short-term yeah. financial pain uh, just for the longer-term subscriber gain. Uh, but I think in the end, so after three to yeah. four years, once things settle down, uh, I, yeah. I think it, it will work out. Sotheby sold David Weston's pencil sharpener from a few years ago, a couple of weeks Mouse ago. Someone who's leaned over the desk and looked at the Excel spreadsheet with a pencil, a Dixon Ticonderogans, and D. Weston joins us with his experience with all this. David, margin erosion is a productive <laughs> stock event. Boy, Tom, I got to tell you, I think you got it exactly right. Did I do because okay? You, you got it exactly right because, listen, we're talking about they have to invest for a time. Okay. Nobody, I haven't heard nobody talk about what the business model is after they've done the investment. What do the margins look like? We know what margins are in theme parks. Paul? We know what margins margins are in merchandise. <laughs> I don't know what the margins look like on streaming. What do the I don't margins know. look like th- three years out or six years out? So, Geetha, tell us, because we're not we're looking at Netflix and we're not seeing a lot of free cash flow there. No, there isn't, and, and there isn't going to be. I mean, they're, they're spending $15 billion this year. Netflix is... <laughs> Uh, just on just on content, they're probably going to spend close closer to twenty billion next year. Right. Uh, and so there is this escalating costs of you know content. But what Disney is really betting on is scale. Uh, and so oh, not not no. not not. <laughs> I mean, they obviously have. <laughs> Listen, they're doing it beautifully, but let's be honest, they had no choice. 
Yeah, Remember they, they, what triggered this thing fair, is when Bob fair. came out that one summer and said ESPN were losing subscribers. Remember the, the stock yeah, tanked? Yeah, and he went back yeah. to his office, I think, and said, we got we no choice. choice. We got to do it. And they're doing it very okay, well. I, let me ask this. I mean, above Hollywood is the white sign. It says Hollywood. Above Burbank is one that says cut costs. <laughs> David, let me start with you. Do you just assume cost cutting is in order on Netflix-like margin erosions? Yes, you have to. The question is where you cut the costs because they're going to be spending a lot in some places and they're going to make it up other Gita, places. Where are they going to cut costs? Um, yeah, they, they are going to cut costs. Uh, so what we're seeing is, uh, you know, obviously with the Fox integration, they, there's a lot of cost cutting going on there. Uh, even with their theatrical slate, they're, they're being really, really careful about some of the movies that they're putting out. So if you see, it's, it's all streaming for, for fiscal 2020. They're kind of really keeping it light from a theatrical perspective. Um, but Tom, you got to give them credit. There's not one person in the United States of America who doesn't know Disney Plus is premiering today. They are the best <laughs> marketers of all. But yeah, they are okay. superb. Hey, Al from New Jersey just emailed and he says, can you talk politics with Weston and stop with <laughs> Disney Plus? Stuff? Geetha, thank you so much. We look forward to talking to you when they tip 300 million subscribers <laughs> in the United States. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.